Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today, we continue our deep dive into the Declaration of Independence. We have reviewed the introduction, the explanation of our founding first principles, the 27 grievances against the empire, and the fatality of petitioning the British government and people. Today, we begin exploring the very last paragraph of the text. I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. With the exception of the very last sentence, we will explore everything in the last paragraph of the Declaration. Quote, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these United Colonies are, and of right, ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Unquote. To get us started is Mike Gerard, host of his own Be Reasonable podcast and fabulous sound designer of this podcast. Mike Gerard, take it away. Why, thank you, Judge. And let's jump right in with the last full paragraph of the Declaration, which begins as follows. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in General Congress, assembled. Now, this was the Second Continental Congress's acceptance of responsibility to the world that it was issuing the Declaration of Independence. And the Second Continental Congress was composed of representatives of the 13 English colonies on the eastern seaboard of North America. And those colonies being New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. As the name indicates, the Second Continental Congress was the successor to the First Continental Congress, which convened in response to the Intolerable Acts. And as we've discussed in prior episodes, the Intolerable Acts were adopted by Great Britain in reaction to the growing resistance to English oppression in the colonies, and most specifically, in response to the Boston Tea Party. On June 17, 1774, Samuel Adams proposed in the Massachusetts House of Representatives a resolution that A meeting of committees from the several colonies on this continent is highly expedient and necessary to consult upon the present state of the colonies and to deliberate and determine upon wise and proper measures to be by them recommended to all colonies for the recovery and establishment of just rights and liberties, civil and religious, and the restoration of union and harmony between Great Britain and the colonies. Samuel Adams's resolution called for a meeting in Philadelphia on September 1st, 1774. The Massachusetts House of Representatives adopted it, and soon nearly all the other colonial legislatures concurred. On September 5th, the Congress convened in Philadelphia at Carpenter's Hall and all colonies but Georgia attended. Although there were 56 delegates, they determined that each colony would receive a single vote regardless of the size of the colony's delegations or population. After a great debate on October 14, 1774, the Congress approved and issued the Declaration and Resolves that laid out the first principles of a free and just government 
a set of grievances of British oppression, and then the following set of resolutions. To these grievous acts and measures, Americans cannot submit, but in hopes that their fellow subjects in Great Britain will, on a revision of them, restore us to that state in which both countries found happiness and prosperity, we have for the present only resolved to pursue the following peaceful measures. 1. To enter into a non-importation, non-consumption, and non-exportation agreement or association. 2. To prepare an address to the people of Great Britain and a memorial to the inhabitants of British America. And 3. To prepare a loyal address to His Majesty, agreeable to resolutions already entered into. On October 20th, 1774, the First Continental Congress established the Association, which was intended to establish and enforce the non-importation, non-consumption, and non-exportation measures adopted on October 14th. The Congress also followed through with the addresses to the King and the people. Finally, they resolved to meet again if their efforts failed to change English policy. The Congress disbanded on October 26, 1774. Since England continued its oppressive actions, the Second Continental Congress met on May 10, 1775. This time, Georgia joined the Congress. Much had changed. The English doubled down on their oppression of the colonists, and the battles of Lexington and Concord were fought less than a month before. British-occupied Boston was under siege from Minutemen and militia from across the colonies. The Second Continental Congress, in essence, started to act as the unitary national government for the United Colonies. It voted to create a Continental Army on June 14, 1775. And on July 6, 1775, Congress approved the Declaration of Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms. And on July 8, it issued the Olive Branch Petition. It started sending diplomats overseas, appointing generals, issuing paper money, and buying war supplies. Now that we remember who was issuing the Declaration of Independence, the passage continues, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the World for the rectitude of our intentions. The Supreme Judge of the World is, of course, God. This was another reference to the Creator and Nature's God from the first few passages of the Declaration. As we learned in prior episodes, the colonies were in part settled as a haven for religious liberty. That most of the delegates held a deeply rooted belief and dedication to God is inescapable. This particular reference to the Supreme Judge of the World was added by the Second Continental Congress. The men wanted to make sure that they, all Americans, and the world understood that what they were doing was pleasing to God. According to Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of 1768, rectitude means righteousness, uprightness, freedom from moral curvity or obliquity. Curvity, by the way, means crookedness. That's right. In other words, the founders were asking God to judge that they were acting rightfully, morally, ethically, that the founding fathers were on the straight path. This invoking of the Supreme Judge echoed similar remarks by South Carolina Chief Justice Drayton a few months earlier in a most remarkable charge to a grand jury. In connection with the Supreme Judge, Chief Justice Drayton made a stirring call to the divine at the conclusion of his charge. The Almighty created America to be independent of Britain. Let us beware of the impiety of being backward to act as instruments in the almighty hand, now extended to accomplish 
his purpose, and by the completion of which alone America, in the nature of human affairs, can be secure against the craft and insidious designs of her enemies, who think her prosperity and power already by far too great. In a word, our piety and political safety are so blended that to refuse our labor in this divine work is to refuse to be a great, a free, a pious, and a happy people. And now, having left the important alternative, political happiness or wretchedness under God, in a great degree in your own hands, I pray the supreme arbiter of the affairs of men so to direct your judgment as that you may act agreeable to what seems to be his will, revealed in his miraculous works in behalf of America, bleeding at the altar of liberty. This theme carried throughout the entire revolutionary era. Less than a month after the Declaration of Independence was approved on the steps of the State House in Philadelphia, where the Second Continental Congress met to debate and approve the Declaration, leading son of liberty and congressman Samuel Adams explained that the Declaration of Independence fulfilled God's mandate. He who made all men hath made the truths necessary to human happiness obvious to all. We have explored the temple of royalty and found that the idol we have bowed down to has eyes which see not, ears that hear not our prayers, and a heart like the nether millstone. We have this day restored the sovereign to whom alone men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and with a propitious eye beholds his subjects assuming that freedom of thought and dignity of self-direction which he bestowed on them. From the rising to the setting sun, may his kingdom come. And although George Washington's inaugural address came many years later, there is little doubt that it reflected sentiments long held by him and many others of the founding generation. It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act of my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the councils of nation, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than those of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. And the next phrase of the Declaration is as follows, and by the authority of the good people of these colonies. Now, if it wasn't for Judge Warren's meticulous nature, I've got a feeling this is something that we could easily just let slide by. I've got a feeling that bombastic Brent Bassett and I were paying attention, but you weren't. Huh? What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, I've got a feeling Mike Gerard is still clueless. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. What? Is, is that even a finished song? Did they record that in their bathroom? Ugh, never mind. Let's just get back to the subject at hand. 
So this phrase, that the Second Continental Congress was working under the authority of the good people of the colonies, harkens back to the idea that Congress was working as the representatives of the people. Recall the phrase, we hold these truths. The Congress is not acting on its own authority, like aristocrats, dictators, nobles, or a monarchy, but on behalf of the good people of America. The Congress then states it does solemnly publish and declare. Now, this is no casual undertaking. This is not done flippantly or spontaneously. It is a solemn occasion. Remember, we explored earlier that the right to revolution should only be invoked when there has been a long train of abuses and usurpations invariably evincing a design for oppression. And here we are again. This is a very solemn occasion. Today, this phrase might not have the same connotation as it did in 1776. Currently, solemn is usually thought of as serious or grave, and it meant that in 1776. But it also meant, as Samuel Johnson's dictionary stated, religiously grave. It also meant awful, striking with seriousness, grave, affectedly serious. And considering that the Congress had just invoked the supreme judge of the world, we're safe to conclude that the meaning of religiously grave was at least part of the intention of choosing this word. And so the passage continues. That these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. This is the key transformative legal phrase of the entire Declaration of Independence. It announces that the United Colonies are now the United States. As we've discussed in prior episodes, in accordance with the State of Virginia's instructions and egged on by John Adams on June 7, 1776, Richard Henry Lee of Virginia moved that the Second Continental Congress adopt the following resolution of independence. That these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for forming foreign alliances, that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration. The Declaration of Independence incorporated the first passage of Lee's resolution, resolved that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Simply put, this passage of the Declaration of Independence, the key to the legal meaning of the Declaration, is simply an incorporation of a portion of Richard Henry Lee's resolution into the body of the Declaration. As this podcast series has illustrated, this resolution was a long time coming. Americans were resisting British tyranny beginning in the early 1760s. And as we have explored, resistance ebbed and flowed as the grievances kept coming. But by 1775, we were at a boiling point. 
Patrick Henry, mesmerized in his Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech on March 23, 1775, that he welcomed a war between Great Britain and America, that reconciliation with England was futile, and that it was better to go to war than to be subjected to British oppression. And the sooner, the better, since America's victory would be speedier and less costly if America could move on a war footing before more British troops and naval forces could establish beachheads in the colonies. In January of 1776, Thomas Paine's common sense shred the last few arguments that remained about why America should not break free of the yoke of the tyrannical king. Although Patrick Henry and Thomas Paine were extraordinarily powerful, famous, and influential, many other voices were clamoring for independence across the colonies. Indeed, unless you're someone like Mike Troy from the American Revolution podcast, you might not realize that the movement for independence was already happening in some colonies well before July 2nd. That is to say, the colonies were declaring independence before the Second Continental Congress made its move. The first state to adopt a form of self-government was New Hampshire. This may be why their state motto is, Live free or die! See, we call him Bombastic Brent Bassett for a reason. And he's right to be excited. In November 1775, New Hampshire was having elections for representatives to their Revolutionary Provincial Congress. At that time, the New Hampshire Congress included in its resolutions that... In case there should be a recommendation from the Continental Congress for this colony to assume government in any way that will require a House of Representatives, that the said Congress fund this colony be empowered to resolve themselves into such a house as may be recommended, and remain such for the aforesaid term of one year. In fact, right on cue, the Second Continental Congress, on November 3, 1775, passed the following resolution recommending... To the Provencal Convention of New Hampshire to call a full and free representation of the people and that the representatives, if they think it necessary, establish such a form of government as in their judgment will best produce the happiness of the people and most effectually secure peace and good order in the province during the continuance of the present dispute between Great Britain and the colonies. In response, New Hampshire's Provincial Congress underwent a transmogrification into a House of Representatives and adopted a constitution on January 5, 1776. This document is short and to the point. It quickly refers to the Second Continental Congress's recommendation to establish a House of Representatives and a new form of government. It succinctly declared that it has taken into our serious consideration the unhappy circumstances into which this colony is involved by means of many grievous and oppressive acts of the British Parliament, depriving us of our natural and constitutional rights and privileges, to enforce obedience to which acts of a powerful fleet and army have been sent to this country by the Ministry of Great Britain, who have exercised a wanton and cruel abuse of their power in destroying the lives and properties of the colonists in many places with sword and fire, taking the ships and lading from many of the honest and industrious inhabitants of this colony employed in commerce, agreeable to the laws and customs a long time used here. The New Hampshire Constitution also explains that the royal governor had abandoned his post, the courts were closed, the populace was threatened by the evil designs of evil men, and creating a new government was necessary for liberty and security to be protected from the machinations and evil designs of wicked men. 
the Constitution then established a basic framework for government intended to be a temporary measure. Accordingly, it wasn't submitted to the people or to a separate constitutional convention for approval. It was so basic it didn't even have a legislative branch or a Bill of Rights. Nevertheless, it was monumental. It was the first constitution adopted in the United Colonies, completely independent of Great Britain. However, it did not expressly declare independence. The second state to make such a move was South Carolina. The royal government basically stopped functioning in 1775. Several colonial institutions, including a revolutionary provincial congress, the Council of Safety, and the General Committee, tried to fill in the gaps and steer governmental affairs, but it was a bit of a mess. In the Second Continental Congress, John Adams was looking for Congress to authorize colonies to establish new governments separate from the king. Fellow congressional delegate John Rutledge from South Carolina agreed with Adams and worked hard to make Adams' ideas come to life with regards to South Carolina. The day after the Congress passed a resolution authorizing New Hampshire to create a new government on November 4, 1775, Congress passed the following resolution. Resolved that the Convention of South Carolina shall find it necessary to establish a form of government in that colony... It be recommended to said convention to call a full and free representation of the people, and that the said representatives, if they think it necessary, establish such form of government as, in their judgment, will best produce the happiness of the people, and most effectually secure peace and good order in the colony during the continuance of the great dispute between Great Britain and the colonies. However, the South Carolinians, having already convened a provincial congress, felt they need not convene a separate convention. Following the tradition set by several proclamations and resolutions before it, including the First Continental Congress's October 14, 1774 Declaration and Resolves and the Second Continental Congress's July 6, 1776 Declaration of Causes and the Necessity of Taking Up Arms, the Constitution of the State of South Carolina, adopted on March 26, 1776, began with a long list of grievances against the British Empire, and then established a new framework for government in South Carolina. Although it was completely independent from the British Empire, it too fell short of a true declaration of independence. One of the South Carolina delegates from the Second Continental Congress, Christopher Gadsden, who returned from Philadelphia and helped craft the new South Carolina government, urged that the Constitution explicitly declare independence, but that proposal was defeated. The Constitution took effect upon approval of the South Carolina Provincial Congress. Like New Hampshire, it was not submitted to the people or a specifically convened ratifying convention. Although the Constitution did not expressly state that it had declared independence, the people of South Carolina were not fools. They knew what had happened. And less than a month later, the leading legal figure in South Carolina, Chief Justice William Henry Drayton, charged the grand jury in Charlestown. He began with noting that the courts had been silent for far too long because they had been closed, because of British tyranny. Then he explained to everyone what happened to the legal status of South Carolina. You are now met to regulate your verdicts under a new constitution of government, independent of royal authority, a constitution which arose according to the great law of nature and nations and which was established in the late Congress of South Carolina on the 26th of March. 
Chief Justice Drayton then reviewed the history of the Hanoverian king's rule over the colony, the recent collection of grievances, colonial resistance, the outbreak of violent resistance in the colonies, and the repeated failure of repeated petitions to Great Britain. All very reminiscent of the yet-to-be-drafted Declaration of Independence. In addition, Drayton reviewed the glorious revolution and how the English people were justified in deposing King James II because he had torn asunder the social compact. Drayton then compared King George III's behavior with King James's apostasy and concluded that as the English were justified in revolting against King James, so were the colonists justified in revolting against King George III. All which doings by King George III respecting America are as much contrary to our interest and welfare, as much against law, and tend as much, at least, to subvert and extirpate the liberties of this colony and of America, as the similar proceedings by James II operated respecting the people of England. For the same principle of law, touching the premises, equally applies to the people of England in the one case and to the people of America in the other. And this is the great principle, certain acts done over and affecting the people, against and without their consent, expressed by themselves or by their representatives of their own election. Upon this principle was grounded the complaints of the people of England. Upon the same is grounded the complaints of the people of America. And hence it clearly follows that if James II violated the fundamental laws of England, George III hath also violated the fundamental laws of America. Drayton then drew the inevitable conclusion. Just as King James II had forfeited his crown in England by oppressing the people and trampling on the Constitution, the same applied to King George III and America. It is evident that George III, King of Great Britain, has endeavored to subvert the constitution of this country by breaking the original contract between king and people. He has violated the fundamental laws and has withdrawn himself by withdrawing the constitutional benefits of the kingly office and his protection out of this country. From such a result of injuries, from such a conjecture of circumstances, the law of the land authorizes me to declare, and it is my duty to boldly to declare, the law that George III, King of Great Britain, has abdicated the government and that the throne is thereby vacant. He has no authority over us and we owe him no obedience. The next month, the ball kept rolling. On April 12, 1776, the 4th Provincial Congress of North Carolina came online with the passage of the Halifax's Resolves when they met at Halifax County, North Carolina. These resolves did not create an independent North Carolina. Instead, they authorized their delegates to the Second Continental Congress to vote for independence for all of the colonies. However, they didn't permit the North Carolinians to initially move for independence, only to support a motion for independence made by another colony. And the vote for the Halifax Resolutions? 83-0. to zero. Several Virginia colonies also jumped on board in April as they instructed their delegates to the colony-wide Virginia Convention to authorize Virginia's delegates to the Second Continental Congress to declare independence if necessary. The Charlotte County, Virginia instructions were emblematic of such resolutions. 
Like the New Hampshire and South Carolina constitutions, they explained that England was engaged in a conspiracy to crush colonial liberties, listed a set of grievances, the futility of petitions, and concluded that independence was not only likely necessary, but so was an offensive war against England. Despairing of any redress of our grievances from the King and Parliament to Great Britain, and all hopes of a reconciliation between her and the United States being now at an end, by the unanimous approbation and direction of the whole freeholders and all the other inhabitants of this county, we advise and instruct you, cheerfully, to concur and give your best assistance in our convention, to push to the utmost of war, offensive and defensive, till you are certified that such proposals of peace are made by our general Congress as shall by them be judged just and friendly. And because the advantages of a trade will better enable us to pay the taxes and procure the necessaries for carrying on a war, and in our present circumstances, this cannot be had without a declaration of independence. Therefore, if no such proposals of peace shall be made, we judge it to be a dictate of the first law of nature to continue to oppose every attempt on our lives and properties, and we give it to you in charge to use your best endeavors that the delegates which are sent to the General Congress be instructed immediately to cast off the British yoke and to enter into a commercial alliance with any nation or nations friendly to our cause. As this was all happening, John Adams was bursting to finish off the debate and embrace independence. He wrote to the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Council, James Warren. Yes, yet another Warren who shared a common ancestor, Richard Warren of the Mayflower, with Son of Liberty Dr. Joseph Warren and our very own Judge Warren. From Philadelphia, Adams wrote on April 16, 1776. I perfectly agree of the necessity proclaiming independency. The salvation of this country depends upon its being done speedily. I am anxious to have it done. Every day tries my patience. I can give you not the least color of a reason why it is not done. Reconciliation upon reasonable terms is no part of the British plan. The only alternative is independence or slavery. Their designs still are as they have ever been to subject us. Our unalterable resolution should be to be free. They have attempted to subdue us by force, but God be praised in vain. Their arts may be more dangerous than their arms. Let us then renounce all treaty with them upon any score but that of total separation and under God trust our case to our swords. The child of independence is now struggling for birth. I trust that it is a short time it will be brought forth and in spite of Pharaoh, all America shall hail the dignified stranger. Adams's diagnosis was correct. The child of independence was near birth. The next month added Rhode Island to the mix of colonies which were severing their ties with England. On May 4, 1776, Rhode Island passed the Acts of Renunciation, renouncing all allegiances and ties to Great Britain. Officially entitled, An Act for the Effectual Securing to His Majesty the Allegiance of His Subjects and This His Colony and Dominion of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, it specifically repealed a law that ensured allegiance to the Crown, replaced several English legal and governmental mechanisms with colonial processes and procedures, including oaths and even the dating of official documents. Following a short summary of grievances, including the open warfare Great Britain was waging, the Act found that Rhode Island had a duty to oppose the tyranny of England. 
Sensing that momentum was building for independence, John Adams and his allies vigorously worked at the Second Continental Congress to support these moves for independency in the colonies, which they believed would ultimately lead to a declaration of independence for all 13 colonies. On May 10th, that work paid off when the Congress adopted a resolution for the formation of local governments, which authorized all colonies to establish their own revolutionary governments separate from the British Empire. After it was adopted, John Adams then drafted a preamble that was adopted by Congress on May 15th, 1776. The preamble sent another shockwave across the continent. Whereas his Britannic Majesty, in conjunction with the Lords and Commons of Great Britain, has by a late act of Parliament excluded the inhabitants of these United Colonies from the protection of his crown, and whereas no answer whatever to the humble petitions of the Colonies for redress of grievances and reconciliation with Great Britain has been or is likely to be given, but the whole force of that kingdom, aided by foreign mercenaries, is to be exerted for the destruction of the good people of these Colonies. And whereas it is absolutely irreconcilable to reason and good conscience for the people of these colonies now to take the oath and affirmations necessary for the support of any government under the crown of Great Britain, and it is necessary that the exercise of every kind of authority under the said crown should be totally suppressed, and all the powers of the government exerted under the authority of the people of the colonies for the preservation of internal peace, virtue, and good order, as well as for the defense of their lives, liberties, and properties against the hostile invasions and cruel depredations of their enemies, therefore resolved that it be recommended to the respective assemblies and conventions of the United Colonies, where no government sufficient to the exigencies of their affairs has been heretofore established, to adopt such government as shall, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conducive to the happiness and safety of their constituents in particular, and America in general. That same day, Virginia's Fourth Convention adopted a resolution authorizing its delegates in Congress to move for a resolution of independence. Remember, North Carolina instructed its delegates to agree to a resolution if some other colony actually moved for independence, and now Virginia took the next vital step, instructing its delegates to actually move for independence for all of the colonies. The vote in Virginia's convention? Unanimous. The resolution took the common pattern. The first half of the document is a preamble forcefully outlining the grievances of the colonies. It continued. In this state of extreme danger, we have no alternative left but an abject submission to the will of these overbearing tyrants, or a total separation from the crown and government of Great Britain, uniting and exerting the strength of all America for defense and forming alliances with foreign powers for commerce and aid in war. Wherefore, appealing to the search of hearts for the sincerity of former declarations expressing our desire to preserve that connection with that nation and that we are driven from that inclination by their wicked counsels and the eternal laws of self-preservation. Resolved, unanimously, that the delegates appointed to represent this colony in General Congress be instructed to propose to that respectable body to declare the United Colonies free and independent states, absolved from all allegiance to or dependence upon the Crown or Parliament of Great Britain, and that they give their assent of this colony to such declaration, 
into whatever measures may be thought proper and necessary by the Congress for forming foreign alliances and a confederation of colonies, such time and in such manner as to them shall seem best, provided that the power of forming government for and the regulation of the internal concerns of each colony be left to the respective colonial legislatures. In the same resolution, the convention appointed a committee to prepare a Declaration of Rights, which was to be a plan of government that would be most likely able to maintain peace and order in Virginia and to secure substantial and equal liberty to the people. After John Adams learned of Virginia's actions, he was elated. He was so eager for independence, he could taste it. He hoped the deed would be done very quickly. Although he was a moving figure towards independence, he was still in awe of what was happening. He wrote to his beloved wife Abigail on May 17, 1776. When I consider the great events which are past, and those greater which are rapidly advancing, and that I may have been some small instrument in touching some springs, and turning some small wheels, which have had and will have such effects, I feel an awe upon my mind which is not easily described. Great Britain has at last driven America to the last step, a complete separation from her, a total absolute independence, not only of her parliament, but of her crown. For such is the amount of the resolve of the 15th. Confederation among ourselves or alliances with foreign nations are not necessary to a perfect separation from Britain, but it is effected by extinguishing all authority under the crown Parliament and nation, as the resolution for instituting governments has done, to all intents and purposes. The spirit of independency was spreading not just in the highest reaches of government, that is, in the colonies and Congress, but was percolating up from local governments. On May 9th, the Massachusetts House of Representatives passed a daring and bold resolution to conjure up local support as follows. The inhabitants of each town in this colony ought to in full meeting, advise the person or persons who shall be chosen to represent them, whether if the Honorable Congress should, for the safety of the said colonies, declare them independent of the kingdom of Great Britain. Such inhabitants will solemnly engage with their lives and fortunes to support the Congress in the measure. Less than three weeks later, the town of Malden unanimously approved instructions to its representative, Mr. Ezra Sargent. It began calmly and then erupted into a thunderbolt. The time was, sir, when we loved the king and the people of Great Britain with an affection truly affilial. We felt ourselves interested in their glory. We shared in their joys and sorrows. We cheerfully poured the fruit of all our labors into the lap of our mother country and without reluctance expended our blood and our treasure in their cause. These were our sentiments towards Great Britain while she continued to act the part of a parent state. We felt ourselves happy in our connection with her, nor wished it to be dissolved but our sentiments are altered. It is now the ardent wish of our soul that America may become a free and independent state. The instructions then reviewed a series of grievances which we have become most familiar, but being in the same colony as Lexington and Concord, it expressed uniquely powerful sentiments arising from the shot heard round the world on April 19, 1775. The plan to wreck despotism was brought to a crisis upon that ever-memorable 19th of April. We remember that fatal day. The expiring groans of our countrymen yet vibrate on our ears, and we now behold the flames of their peaceful dwellings ascending to heaven. We hear their blood crying to us from the ground for vengeance 
charging us as we value the peace of their names to have no further connection with. Who can unfeeling hear the slaughter of and composedly sleep with their blood upon his soil? The manner in which the war has been prosecuted hath confirmed us in these sentiments. We therefore renounce with disdain our connection with the kingdom of slaves. We bid a final adieu to Britain. And we now instruct you, sir, to give them the strongest assurance that if they shall declare America to be a free and independent republic, your constituents will support and defend the measure to the last drop of their blood and the last farthing of their treasure. Oh, wow. I mean, the Founding Fathers were just so much more eloquent than today's excuse for political dialogue. But Malden was not alone. Its instructions were very representative of many such resolutions passed by fellow towns. And meanwhile, the ball of independence kept growing larger. In North Carolina, on the last day of May 1776, resolutions were adopted in Charlottetown in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina. The resolutions declared null and void all English authority. They resolved that local government should act to establish new laws, created a method for implementing a new government, and called for the activation and arming of the local militia. The movement towards independence became red hot in June. And on June 14, 1776, the Connecticut Assembly unanimously adopted a resolution instructing its delegates to propose that the Second Continental Congress adopt a resolution declaring independence from Great Britain. The preamble to the resolution listed a set of general grievances and then forcefully explained why they had no choice but to move forward with independency. These and many other transactions too well known to need enumeration, the painful experience of which we have suffered and feel, make it evident, beyond the possibility of a doubt, that we have nothing to hope from the justice, humanity, or temperate counsels of the British king or his parliament, and that all hopes of reconciliation upon just and equal terms are illusory and vain in the state of extreme danger, when no alternative is left us but absolute and indefinite submission to such claims as must terminate in the extreme of misery and wretchedness, or a total separation from the king of Great Britain, and renunciation of all connection with that nation, and a successful resistance to that force which is intended to effect our destruction appealing to that God who knows the secrets of all hearts. For the sincerity of former declarations of our desire to preserve our ancient and constitutional relation to that country, and protesting solemnly against their oppression and injustice which has drawn us from them, and compelled us to use such means as God and his providence hath put in our power for our necessary defense and preservation. Pennsylvania would also instruct its congressional delegates on June 24, 1776 to vote for independence, subject to the caveat that the internal affairs of Pennsylvania would be governed by the newly established government, which, after all, was created at the request of Congress in May. Meanwhile, in Virginia, they were busy establishing a new constitution. Thomas Jefferson was stuck in Philadelphia with the Second Continental Congress and desperately wished he was in Virginia. Now, you might ask why and it's because Virginia was following the directive by the Second Continental Congress for the colonies to begin creating their own systems of government independent from the empire. And Jefferson so desperately wanted to be on the ground floor of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he went ahead and drafted a proposed constitution while in Philadelphia. He entrusted it to George Wythe to deliver it to the Virginia Convention. 
Wythe was his fellow delegate and former teacher. By the time Wythe arrived in Virginia, the convention was all but done. Still, Jefferson's genius would find expression in the preamble to the Constitution. It was a dress rehearsal of the list of grievances in the Declaration of Independence. Although this was his third draft, Jefferson only listed 18 specific grievances along with a catch-all grievance as opposed to the 27 specific grievances in the final version of the Declaration of Independence. After the grievances, Jefferson explained that Great Britain had forfeited any right to govern Virginia. By which these several acts of misrule, the government to this country, as formally exercised under the crown of Great Britain, is totally dissolved. The Virginia Constitution, complete with a slightly revised version of Jefferson's preamble, was adopted on June 29, 1776. And this is all the more remarkable and a testament to Jefferson's amazing skills because his draft arrived after the Virginia Convention was all but complete and just five days before the adoption of the Constitution. There's at least 90 documents that could be characterized as Declaration of Independences that were adopted between April and July 1776 from various colonies and local governments. And as we've reviewed, some are the colonies declaring independence from England, others are instructions to delegates to the Second Continental Congress to propose or concur in independence. Some are local resolutions embodying the sentiments of the local populace. Some were even associations, such as mechanics or militia units that announced their support. And then there is South Carolina's Chief Justice Drayton's brilliant charge to the grand jury. Judge? How about you take it from here? I'd be delighted to, my Gerard. Many thanks. Now that the colonies have declared independence and dissolved all allegiance and bonds with the British Empire, what does that mean? The last phrase of the penultimate sentence of the Declaration of Independence is as follows, quote, And that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do, unquote. As independent states, the ex-colonies now move from being subsidiary units under the realm and control of Great Britain to being independent actors on the world stage. Taking a step back to get a basic understanding of the topic is appropriate here. Scholars agree that independent states, and what I mean here is not a state within the United States like Texas or California, but independent countries, have certain characteristics. Princeton Sir Arthur Watts explains. States are the basic primary components of the international community. Only sovereign states which enjoy full international legal personality, in other words, the full range of legal rights, duties, and powers which international law confers upon those entities which are subject to that system of law and the capacity to act on the international plane. States are the basic components of the international community, and it is therefore the law of that community, international law, which establishes the criteria of statehood. The essence of statehood reflects the needs of effectiveness, At its heart lie the factual requirements of a population and a territory, and the political requirement 
of an organized, independent government. Scholars generally agree that states exercise control over clearly defined and internally recognized territory, have clear borders, defend and control the territory, are recognized by other countries, have bureaucracies staffed by their own people, and in connection with the modern age, have control over money, trade, taxes, citizenship, and the legitimate use of force. According to the United Nations, there are 193 states. Professor R. Adam Dastrup gives a bit of a background on the development of states and the difference between nations, states, and nation-states. Today, we take it for granted that different societies are governed by different states, but this has not always been the case. In fact, for most of human history, people have lived in stateless societies, characterized by a lack of concentrated authority and the absence of significant inequalities in economic and political power. The idea or concept of a state originated in the fertile crescent between the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea. The first ancient states that formed during this time were called city-states. A city-state is a sovereign state that encompasses a town and the surrounding landscape. Often, city-states secured the town by surrounding it with walls, and farmlands were located outside of the city walls. Later, empires formed when a single city-state militarily controlled several city-states. The first known states were created in ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, China, and the Americas. For example, the Aztec civilization and the Inca civilization. Most agree that the earliest states emerged when agriculture and writing made it possible to centralize power. The concept of the modern nation-state began in Europe as a political revolution laid the groundwork for a sense of nationalism, a feeling of devotion or loyalty to a specific nation. The term nation refers to a homogeneous group of people with a common heritage, language, religion, or political ambition. The term state refers to the government. For example, the United States has a state department with a secretary of state. When nations and states come together, there is a true nation-state, wherein most citizens share a common heritage and a united government. Obviously, the United Colonies in 1776 were well past the primordial age and intended to join the international stage as a true nation-state. They shared the common heritage of English colonies and created a Continental Congress for a united, albeit weak, central government. George Sutherland, then a United States Senator from Utah and future Justice of the United States Supreme Court, explained the transformation that occurred with the Declaration of Independence. Prior to the Revolution, the colonies were independent of each other, but all owed common allegiance to the crown of Great Britain. They were invested with and exercised in subordination to the crown certain governmental functions of a purely local and internal character. But so far as foreign relations were concerned, the imperial government exercised plenary authority. 
When they severed their connection with Great Britain, they did not do so as separate colonies, but as the United States of America. And they declared not the several colonies, but the United Colonies to be free and independent states. Not New York or Georgia or South Carolina severally, but all the colonies in their united and collective capacity. This declaration was an assertion of and constituted the first step toward nationality. This is why the Second Continental Congress specified very directly in the Declaration of Independence several attributes of an independent state, including engaging in war, peace, alliances, and commerce. The United States would not play second fiddle to any other power. It would stand alone and equal to other nations. The Declaration of Independence had birthed a new nation-state in 1776. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Second Continental Congress appealed to the Supreme Judge of the World to approve independence. The Congress adopted Richard Henry Lee's Resolution of Independence and proclaimed America a new nation, dissolving allegiance and any bonds of subordination to the English Empire. By doing so, the ex-colonies had the full attributes of a new nation, including the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Please join us for our next general episode about the final line of text of the Declaration of Independence. Quote, And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Unquote. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for many fabulous resources about our first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history. We have, for instance, over 250 videos and many other goodies. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skonechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his most unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, proud graduate of De La Salle Collegiate High School and amazing bartender. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.